It's a privilege to be back here in this place with you. I was reflecting that it was just about 12 years ago that we moved to town. We're starting our 13th year in town, which is hard for me to think about. It's been a, a, a good experience to be here, and I'm looking forward to lucky year number 13. Uh, <laughs> year 12, which should be theoretically more biblically lucky, did not work out, so uh, that was a rough year. And uh, so maybe year 13 will be a little better. I want to talk to you this morning, as usual, I'll start with a story, but I want to talk about truth, grace, and forgiveness. When I was a boy for a very short time, my home church was very into door-to-door cold call evangelism. And I don't know if you've ever been part of a church that did door-to-door cold call evangelism. I was a young teenager. I was probably Grace's age, uh, maybe 15. I might have been 14 in there, somewhere in there. And our pastor shared that our church would be starting a program called Evangelism Explosion to reach out to our neighborhood. And so for a few months, we would get together and we would learn the outline that was prescribed by Evangelism Explosion and its founder, D. James Kennedy, if you know that name. And uh, we would learn the outline that we would go to people's houses and share the gospel with them. We were uh, taught to ask two diagnostic questions at the beginning of each visit in the home. First, if you died tonight, are you sure that you would go to heaven? That was question number one. And question number two was, if you were to die and appear before God and God said, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And then the rest of our spiel was built off the responses to those first two questions. And then after we went and visited, we would all come back to the church and we would talk about how the night had gone over wheat thins, Triscuits, and Celestial Seasonings Red Zinger Herbal Tea, for which I still have a soft spot. The practice filled me with a lot of angst when I was a kid. I was a churchy kid, and I know that I'm talking to a lot of people who were churchy kids, Uh, but I was, you know, I'm sure I was churchier than most of you. I'll put it that way. I I was... I was there all the time. I always, always wanted to be good. Do you know, you know that feeling. I think Houghton knows that feeling. If you could meet Michael in 1985, 1990, 1995, I wanted to be the good boy. And I look back on this whole experience with wistfulness and and regret and You know, I think I'm only realizing now, and I think newly realizing as I continue to age, at age 43, I am still unpacking and unraveling how, for me, walking with Jesus still gets confused with getting the affirmation and approval of other people. I have not yet fully untangled that. I still remember and enjoy the metaphorical pats on the head that I would get as a young boy for taking communion, for being baptized. I remember that our church had an Easter sunrise service in the little town where I lived, and I would get up and walk to it, even though nobody else in my family would wake up yet, mostly because the old ladies who were at that service would pat my eight-year-old head and thank me for coming, and it would give them hope for the future, that I would get up, and I was thinking, lady, I'm already up. Like, you know, I get up at five in the morning to get the paper and read the sports page. I'm ready to, you know, (laughs) but you know, 
Like, I wanted to be the good boy, and, and doing door-to-door evangelism, that was the good boy thing to do. But it was hard for me because that idea of ringing a stranger's doorbell and asking them questions about what they would do in the hour of their death, that was a lot for me. <laughs> like, it felt like a conversation you could really only have with a person that you really knew very well. And don't hear me say, like, I'm not saying I'm obviously right and the pastor who suggested this was obviously wrong. He and I were just really different people. He had come from a different part of the country where I think, like I was from suburban New Jersey, which is a little more private, and I was, I was just a much more private person. So, but, but, so that kind of like tension I felt in me, my desire to be the good kid won out, and I participated. And they were challenging times for me. They were good times in some ways when I look back. There are two things that I remember from doing that kind of work. One I'll share with you now, one I'll get to later in the sermon. But the first feeling I had, the first thing that it was a takeaway for me, was that I always felt like I was trying to sell something to people who really didn't want it. You know that feeling. And, and uh, essentially, as I've thought about it, as I've unpacked this experience, I was doing sales work. And that's not to demean it, like even Billy Graham recognized, like Billy Graham spent his college summers also doing sales work, and he recognized the connection between evangelism and sales work. But for me, the challenging part was, in sales, you have to establish a need for your product. And it was hard to establish a need for Jesus as a 14-year-old suburban kid in New Jersey, because all of my friends thought Jesus was the thing that kept you from doing the things you really wanted to do, right? Church was the thing that sort of made it so that you didn't go to parties, and you didn't drink, and you didn't go too far with girls, and why anyone would sign up for that exactly was hard to establish to another 14 or 15-year-old in suburban New Jersey. And so you'd go in and you'd talk about sin. You'd say, sin is the problem. Jesus is the solution. But most of the people I talked to didn't realize sin was a problem at all, right? They saw sin as fun, So it felt really hard to establish a need. And I have to say, that's one of the things I'm actually very excited, not sin, one of the things I'm very excited about (laughs) in this moment, right, is that we don't have to establish a need in quite the same way anymore. During a global pandemic, people are realizing that isolation kills. People are realizing that something is terribly wrong. People are watching relationships fray before their very eyes. So this is a time in the church's history when if we have the collective will and the collective humility to follow Jesus, we have something that the world perceives it needs, right? Our life together speaks a word about Jesus. It speaks a word one way or other about Jesus. (laughs) But this is a time when the world would receive a word from the Lord that showed them about how to walk through these paralyzing times in a way that brought life and joy instead of isolation and death. And that demands a lot of us. And I hope this sermon moves us a little closer to being able to do that. I don't like titling sermons. It's my least favorite part of the sermon writing process. So I just called it Truth, Grace, Forgiveness. And those are the things that I hope you'll remember today that perhaps in our life together, if we embody truth, grace, forgiveness, our life together will speak a word to the world that gives the life of Christ. First thing, truth. Paul makes very clear, because we're in this together, we are members of one another, 
We have to speak the truth to each other. Basic example. In our marriage, Jill and I have different kinds of truth that we really understand well. If you know Jill, you're not surprised by this, right? I understand words. I understand people. I love words. I love people, and I love the alchemy of preaching and writing. And Jill understands other things really, really well. I was, our anniversary was yesterday, 22 years of being married, which is astounding to me. But we were, uh, I was thinking back about our wedding reception and how when Jill was planning our wedding reception with her mother, they got out graph paper. I didn't know that normal people kept graph paper in their home. And they cut out little things representing the tables and the chairs and how everything, and then they would set it up in front of us. And I was just like, is this a thing that people do, you know? And, I was stunned, and for 22 years, every time we have renovated our house, every time we have moved somewhere, out comes the graph paper, right? I don't say this at all to throw Jill under the bus. Our house is in a different kind of order than I ever knew possible. That has been life-giving for me because there is someone in my world who understands what graph paper can do to set up a house, right? Like, I'm just not that kind of person. Like, to this day, if someone is trying to explain something visual to me, like even if someone is just giving me directions somewhere, there comes a point in the conversation where I just stop listening altogether, and I just sort of think, I hope I can remember bits and pieces of what this person has said because I've lost the plot. I can't see it in my mind. But Jill can see those things. And it's an astounding gift that I just don't have. For a while, as you can imagine, and maybe even sometimes today, it's the source of strain to be married to someone who has really different gifts than you. And when I tell couples when I'm doing premarital counseling is that we're at our best when we honor each other's gifts. When we go into a situation and say, maybe this is the right time for you to do your thing. <laughs> maybe it's time for the graph paper to come out, right? And there are other times to walk into a situation and say, maybe it's time, Michael, for you to do your thing. Maybe there's a per interpersonal situation that needs a little finesse. Maybe this is your time, right? But if we go into these situations, there are times that I do this, where I go into these situations and I resent the graph paper, where I say to myself, I could handle this by myself, without you. That doesn't help. Not at all. First of all, it hurts Jill. And second of all, it robs us of at least half the gifts we could be using in any given situation to solve a problem. So we're at our best when we honor each other's gifts. We're at our worst when we're defensive about the gifts that the other brings to the table. Now, I'm not telling you this because it is this way in all of your marriages. Maybe some of you resonate with that, some of you don't, right? The point is, the biological family is not the be-all and end-all. What I'm talking about is the body of Christ. I'm talking about us, right? As it's true for me and Jill, it's also true for me and you, just in a different way, right? Each of us in this room has different gifts and different sensitivities, some of them hardwired into us, some of them brought on by the ordinary and sometimes extraordinary trauma that life has given us, and we are sensitive to different things and we bring different skill sets. And so when Paul says, speak the truth to each other, that's what he's talking about. Have the courage to speak the truth. Have the courage to listen to the truth from someone who's challenging you. That's, that's the other thing I remember from doing door-to-door -door evangelism, right? There is something so brave about going up and ringing that doorbell, bing bong, and asking someone two questions about the hour of their death. There's something really brave about that. But there is something 
exponentially more brave about opening the door, allowing a stranger into your living room, and seriously considering a question about the hour of my death. (laughs) And I think sometimes Christians recognize the doorbell ringer as brave, but we downplay the bravery of the person who lets you in and listens to what you have to say. Because when someone tells you something that could change your life, the overwhelming temptation in that moment is to respond in a way that says, I was actually okay before you walked in this door. I don't need to change. And that was my feeling in the moment, you know, like, like the, uh, that asking this person that whatever elaborate house of cards they had built about their life, that, that they had built their lives on and, and their meaning in uh, their, their meta-narrative for life, and saying to them, you know what, that's not good enough. Let's tear this down. Let's build a different house with Jesus as the foundation. It took bravery to say that, but it took so much more bravery to even imagine that that might be true, especially when the, the person asking you is just like, you know, a couple of guys who are going to listen to your answers and then go back and have wheat thins and celestial seasonings, red zinger tea, you know? Like there's so much bravery about daring to listen to that question. And when I was growing up, I was given a lot of positive feedback, a lot of metaphorical pats on the head for having bravery to speak the truth. But I was not always given a lot of positive feedback for allowing others to speak the truth to me. I was given a lot of positive feedback for choosing to write my ninth grade biology paper on intelligent design and why evolution wasn't true. I was not given a lot of positive feedback when I tried to understand what my teacher was trying to say, consider whether it might be true, and choose to follow the truth no matter where it led me. Brave speaking was rewarded. Brave listening was not always rewarded. And I think that's natural in a sense, right? Like, I mean, brave speaking sort of says what we're doing here has meaning, what we're doing has purpose, we're defending it. But we, un- we miss sometimes the idea that we could be committed to something that's wrong and need brave listening. We often have to battle through layers of shame to even begin to engage someone who challenges us. And it's so brave to do that. And so speaking the truth to each other, as Paul suggests, is not just a matter of being brave enough to say what's on your mind. It's being brave enough to really entertain what someone else is saying. Keep learning, keep growing, keep reforming, keep becoming more like Jesus because of the truth you're learning from each other. That's one thing, that's truth. Now the flip side of all this is considering why do we speak when we speak? And and that's grace. This is where Paul says uh, in the NRSV that I used when I was prepping this, right? Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up so that your words may give grace to those who hear. I notice the NIV says benefit. That's fine, but I like the theologically rich language of give grace to those who hear. The idea that words could give grace is an amazing thing for a talkative young boy. (laughs) Like, I quite often heard about how talkative I was, and now that I experience a few talkative children, I understand how words don't always give grace, the volume of nonsense in my life. Like, I hear a lot of it, right? But Paul's assertion that words can give grace, 
That's an amazing thing for someone who loves words so much. So, but Paul clearly understands that words can also do the opposite, that words can bring harm. And so speaking the truth also demands that we think about who we are speaking to and why we're saying what we're saying. Because otherwise, even the truth can become weaponized, even the truth can become evil talk when wielded in the wrong way. Like I said, I always wanted to be the good kid. It's one thing, though, to share the gospel with someone out of a genuine concern for them. It's another thing to share the gospel with them because you're afraid of not being the good kid in a moment. If you're in a conversation, if you're exchanging words with someone in a moment, even as I'm up here with you now, right, it's so vital that we recognize the precious people that we're talking to. And we have to let that take the lead in how we speak the truth. That doesn't mean we shy away from saying difficult things. You know me well enough to know I say difficult things from time to time. And if any of you knew my family, you knew I got it honest. So we don't want to hide our light under a bushel. But we want to speak in a way that extends grace by recognizing we're talking to other people created in the image of God. When we do that, that that makes sure that my own agenda isn't taking center stage and letting God's agenda begin to take center stage. And that's not just for evangelism, that's for all kinds of speech. I've heard lots of sermons where I've heard it and thought, I know that the preacher enjoyed giving that sermon. (laughs) That preacher felt the need to say that. That got something off the chest for the preacher. But was it useful for those who were listening? It goes for conversations with each other in the body, too, right? And, and the way that we can begin to do this, I think, is when we understand ourselves as recipients of grace, if we're going to extend that grace to other people, right? I recognize now, like, how hard it is if I don't understand myself as having received God's grace. It's hard to think that I could really give you God's grace as I'm talking with you. Right? If, I, if I don't really understand that God loves me, that God has graced me, then it's very easy for me to take every sermon, and not just every sermon, every congregation, and use it to get the affection, the admiration that I want to have in that moment. Psychologists, talk to me later about this. I don't know if I'm right about it, but I think I'm close. <laughs> like this idea that we can take ordinary conversations ordinary interactions with others and make them about us because there's something in us that's afraid that we're not as deeply loved as the Bible says we are. That's what kills relationships in the body. And again, if you need to do a post-mortem on any of this, just look at social media in the last 17 months, right? The way that we interact with each other doesn't always reveal that we are secure people acting out of a sense of God's grace in our moment. But instead, speaking anxiously, speaking out of fear, speaking because we feel like if we do not say this, the world is going to go to hell in a handbasket. If I preach in a way that doesn't understand how much God loves me, then I could do any number of things up here. I could preach in a way that flattered your ears, 
right, so that you would love me, or I could preach in a way that was trying to demonstrate to you that I'm angry in just the same way that you're angry, or, or I could preach in such a way that was like angry in a way that's different than you're angry, but daring you to disagree with me. But when I know that God loves me, <laughs> then I can love you as you. And that's also true for listening, right? <laughs> like right now, right now people are so sad and so angry so grief-stricken. I have described this whole situation as a slow-motion trauma, and nothing has changed my mind in the last 17 months. And so to watch the sadness that we all feel and the grief that we collectively feel, of course what people do when they're grief-stricken is to waste words (laughs) and to react out of all the things that we feel when we're sad. A very natural response to all that we're feeling right now is self-centered speech that seeks to reassure the speaker that they're in control of the situation and correct. That's what's to be expected. (laughs) And so as we see it, we can be gracious. Not that we have to agree with everything everyone says. It doesn't mean that we consider all opinions equally valid. It just means we understand that we're living through something that is causing grief and pain in the same way a death causes grief and pain. And in those moments when we have to choose between speaking and listening, we have to realize that maybe that's a false dichotomy. (laughs) And maybe we choose between gracious speech and gracious listening or angry speech and passive aggressive listening and gossiping about them later probably. That's the choice that's before us. And often when we can't choose grace, it's because we are not as healed as we think we are. Truth, grace. Last, forgiveness. It seems like a throwaway line when Paul says, forgive one another as Christ, or God in Christ has forgiven you. It's not a throwaway line. It's a a challenging idea to forgive someone, but then to have it painted as, as Christ forgives you. How does God in Christ forgive us? I have come to realize that maybe one of the most things that kept me sane in the last year and one of the most revolutionary things we do that I get to do on our campus is each day when we have a prayer of confession at communion or evening prayer, And I get to respond as the person leading the service. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and God is just. He will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That idea of cleansing us from all unrighteousness is so powerful. It's unthinkable from a human perspective. My prayer these days is all about God's mercy. For you, for me, for all of us together. I sometimes, and again, this may come with being the kind of person I am, but but I sometimes think about all the Christian pastors and leaders who have come before me and who have gotten significant things wrong over the years. Sometimes, I begin to think about the pastors who held slaves, 
and dulled their conscience to that reality. I think about the pastors who stood on the wrong side of some theological debate. I think about pastors who barred the pulpit to women, pastors who got just war versus pacifism wrong. And you know what? All of those errors had real consequences. People got hurt. Bodies were harmed. Lives were changed. Lives were ruined. Minds were changed. Minds were malformed. Many great minds cleverly defended error and pitched error in an attractive way that drew people further from Christ and instead of closer to him. And here's the thing, right? Those people who were hurt and led astray by those pastors, they went and acted on those hurt, at that hurt and on those lies, and they impacted other people, and on and on and on. Don't tell me there's no such thing as systemic sin. It gets its way into all of our relationships and all of our institutions. And I know that all Christians did this, but I, but I feel a special burden for the pastors. That's who I am, you know? And then if I have any integrity at all, I have to acknowledge the obvious truth, Michael, good boy. The same is true of you. <laughs> I'm no grand exception. On the great day of judgment, God is not going to call me down front and say, here is my servant, Michael, the pastor who got everything right. On the last day when the veil is removed and I no longer see in a glass darkly, and I see the sum total of everything, there are things of which I will be ashamed. There will be sermons I want back. There will be pastoral moments I want back. There will be things I've told my children or failed to tell my children that I want to redo on. And this is why I'm so adamant that we need to speak the truth to each other, because I want there to be less weeping on that day rather than more. That's why every bit of my heart's cry for the last 17 months has been mercy, mercy, depth of mercy. Can there be mercy still reserved for me? Can my God his wrath forbear? Me, the chief of sinners, spare? And the amazing news of the gospel is, yes, <laughs> there's mercy. Not even because you're a good boy, Michael. Just because I'm merciful. He will wash away my sin. Let his little child come in. And what that forgiveness looks like, I cannot know now fully because I'm not aware of the magnitude of what needs to be forgiven. And not to be rude, neither are you. But this is the amazing news. If we confess, God is gracious and forgives and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. What would it mean to take all the error, all the pain, all the hurt caused by just one person and clean it all up? We can't imagine. It would look like Eden or heaven. But it's true, and every weekday during the semester, I, like I say, I have this gracious privilege of telling students this amazing news, and it gives me hope because I picture all of the mess that I must leave behind through my own error, and I picture God on his hands and knees cleaning it up after me and inviting me to join him, cleansing me, making me holy, making me less inclined to make this kind of error, promising that he will fit me for heaven, making me new into someone who genuinely rejoices at the good, someone who genuinely thrills at the prospect of life with him. And I imagine that, and my heart leaps up, and here's the unthinkably good news. The text says that this is what we do for each other. As God in Christ forgives us, 
we also can forgive each other. That's amazing to think about. I'm sure Paul's not trying to say that we can do everything that Christ does in forgiveness, but the thought that we could be part of lessening that burden in each other's lives, that we could be partners with each other in actively cleaning up the messes that we're all leaving behind like the toddlers we are, the thought that we could be gracious with others in their mess doesn't mean pretending there's no mess. It doesn't mean pretending all messes are created equal. It's not about saying, I didn't say anything to you because of my own mess, but it's acknowledging my total dependence and loving you as you are totally dependent in the midst of your own mess. When I think of what it means to forgive, it's not just a matter of saying, I forgive you. But Paul seems to be saying we're partners in cleaning up each other's mess. I can know that I'm truly forgiving others when I'm not just hell-bent on challenging my opponent to recognize how wrong they are so that I can finally extend them forgiveness once they repent. But I can know that I am forgiving as Christ forgives when I say, let me clean that up with you. I'm with you. I'm with you as we both face the reality of the moment we're in. And for me, I'll just say this as a boy who makes messes. I can feel forgiven when the person talking to me isn't shouting me down until I feel shamed enough to repent. I can feel forgiven when the church around me says, I'm your partner as we work through this together. Because I know standing by my side is not just the invisible Jesus, but all of you. Sorry, I talked longer than usual. Here's the good news. The world isn't looking for us to turn stones into bread. The world isn't looking for a worship band of perfectly beautiful people with perfect teeth and an amazing worship experience. They are looking for a people who know the living Christ and bear witness to that in the way that they speak with truth, grace, and forgiveness. Let me pray. God, we are thankful for the deep love that you have for us in Jesus. We are thankful that this is the ultimate truth on which the universe itself rests. Not the fact that we've been good boys or girls, but that the love of Christ is this undercurrent that called the world into being and sustains it through your powerful spirit. We pray, God, that you would be present with us in our life together. Help us to be people who honor you in the way that we live. We ask this through Christ. Amen.